Welcome back to The Unfinished Mind, everyone. Today, we have a really special episode because we have a guest on today. We have Dr. Michael Mackart. He's a professor in the Department of Population Health here at UT Austin and is a director of the Center of Health for Health Communication. He earned his PhD in Mass Media and Information Studies at Michigan State University. His research interests include strategies that can be used in traditional and new digital media to provide effective health communication to low health literate audiences. He's also the author of the book, Designing Effective Health Messages. Welcome to The Unfinished Mind, Dr. Margaret. We're really glad to have you here. <laughs> it's good to be here. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Yeah. Um, so our first question is, could you please define health communication and give our listeners a brief introduction on the work that you and other health communication experts do? Sure. So I usually define health communication as both the science and the art of using communication to advance the health and well-being of people and populations. And so the, the people to populations part is the like, it's everything from inner, like, you know, patient provider communication, how to families communicate about health, all the way up to, you know, building effective health, you know, public health campaigns or health on social media. Um, and then the science parts, the other part that I always highlight is like, there's decades and decades of research and theory of like what good communication is and what good health communication is. And so it's not like you, you can get better at, it, you can get trained at it. We know what works. And so there's a real science to good, to good health communication. Uh, in terms of what our center does, um, I usually tell people outside UT that we're a very highly qualified health ad agency hiding at the university because we have a 23 person team right now. And we build, um, evaluate public health campaigns for the state of Texas, for MD Anderson, for UT system, for all kinds of funded partners. And so it's, it's a really unique setup. I think we have like five graphic designers and a copywriter and people with, you know, masters in public health or PhDs in communication. And so it's, it's a really big and, and kind of varied team, but it's really cool to kind of be doing health comm work in the real world and seeing like how our, how our research can really kind of support people's health across the state. So that's, that's the quick version. Wow, that's like you're right there. You're at like the front line of like <laughs> getting sure that, you know, making sure that this communication happens effectively and in the best way possible um, for a lot of joint things with you two. I'm wondering, how did you get involved in health communication? Like, why was this something you wanted to do? <laughs> uh, it was just a whole series of accidents, honestly. Um, I have a bachelor's in chemistry, and because I had a really inspirational high school chemistry teacher. And then I was about my junior year, it was like the second organic lecture in first physical chemistry lab or something. And I was like, oh God, this is not what I want to do. Oh, no. <laughs> and, and so I, I was doing a lot of communication stuff as electives for fun. And I got into health comm just by random chance. Like my, when I applied to grad school, my eventual advisor kind of picked me out of the application pool, offered me a grad student research job, and she was a telemedicine researcher. So I got into health comm just kind of by accident. If, if someone else had picked my application up, I'd be doing something completely different right now. Um, but from the very first project, totally fell in love with it. Like it, it was really, it was a, it was a telehospice project. So we were, we were doing hospice care by video phone back when video phone was like a little one inch square and like a right. copper phone line. And, but it was, it was, you know, interviewing patients who were dying on hospice care and some of their nurses was like, just, I was like, Oh, this matters. And so from that very first project, I was kind of in love and been doing it ever since. Perfect. <laughs> I have a very similar story. Uh, I'm also getting my chemistry degree, but because I had a high school teacher that really <laughs> inspired me. Um, don't know what I'm going to do with it, but hopefully it'll be relevant in some way. <laughs> 
Yeah. So um, you mentioned how you first like maybe got interested in health communication through your PhD. And since you have publications going back as far as like 2003, what do you think has been like the most uh, significant change in health communication over the past 20 years? And has there been like a significant change in technology that transformed the health communication space? That's a question. Um, I guess there's maybe two things I would say. And one is for, for me personally, a change and something that really meant a lot was coming from my graduate program. It was like, we're going to make things with, with the health literacy researchers ahead. It's like, we're going to make this information about diabetes really accessible, really plain language. And it was only landing a school of advertising where it was like, oh, it actually matters that people want to pay attention to the thing that I'm giving them. And so I think it's this increased focus on content that's, for, from my perspective, both understandable, but also engaging. So plain language, boring stuff doesn't get the job done. So how do we take some of those tools and techniques of advertising, marketing, use them for good? Um, I think technology-wise, a lot of what I spend my time teaching my advertising students is like quick chasing shiny objects on the ground. Um, like I remember the semester that like MySpace was the answer no matter what the problem was. Like they, that was never the answer. And so I think that, you know, so it's focusing always first on who are you trying to reach and what do you want to say to them in terms of effective communication is always a starting point. And it's not whatever the social media thing of the moment is like i i don't i don't do classroom like how do you use tiktok because someday tiktok will go away and some other new thing will be taking all our time so there's that i think right now the the, the actual like really big thing that might change a lot is chat gpt some of this generative ai stuff because we, we are starting to use it and think of it as like a tool for our job so people always are like make it more plain language i'm like well what is that like you're like, what does that mean exactly? Like, the, like sometimes are not a great plain language alternative for some of the complicated things. Um, but we've started to think about how a tool like that, if we, we if we take text we already like and be like, make it sixth grade reading level, like it generates ideas that we wouldn't have thought of ourselves. And so I think there's a lot of potential for that kind of technology to make healthcom work a lot better for people who are using it. Um, even if there's a lot of like development still to go in the technology itself, but it's it's already totally becoming a tool we can use to kind of build and, and do healthcom more effectively. That's very cool. I feel like a lot of people have described chat GPT as something that like is a threat to like what we can do as people. And like for you, it's more of like a tool. Like you don't think it's going to sort of take away from like, let's say like the job like sphere or anything like that. I mean, right. I mean, it still makes stuff up like you you can't trust it to not hallucinate and, and generate things like we're <laughs> we're doing some research right now, um, actually studying in, in the context of one of our projects, like how do people search for health information using, and this will be randomized either to Google or the chat GPT version. And then we sent back a sample results page and I like, I'm, we are in the middle of data collection. So we're going to see, like, I strongly suspect that people are going to just blindly trust the chat GPT results yeah. because over like a decade, we've learned how to judge search results in Google. And like, most people don't know how chat GPT works. And most people are going to be like, well, let's just send me three paragraphs. I should probably trust that. Like, that's bad. Um, so we're, we're really trying to study that, that part of it right now so no, I, I don't think the robots are coming for all of our jobs but i think it's it's really interesting actually the prompt for my my health comm class this uh sure. this week was going to be about generative ai and i've never this is a brand new day in the course this year and so i went to chat gpt and i asked it i was like what would be a good prompt to get students talking about this and it wrote a really good prompt and so i told the students this is what i asked it for this is what it gave me now this is what you're gonna answer and we're gonna talk about it in class on wednesday so it's like i have no idea like i i'm just starting to peek at what the students came up with it's tons of really neat stuff so that i think it's, it's a tool it's, it's it's a neat thing but it's not it's not good or bad it's going to be a tool and some people are going to use it really well and some people are going to use it in really not great ways 
That's fair. That is super cool. Though. <laughs> Not to like bring up the ghost of the past, but it is important to talk about COVID-19 just a little bit. <laughs> um, the COVID-19 pandemic sort of stress tested health communication in some ways and brought this field to the forefront of everyone's mind. I, I know it definitely did for me. Um, what were some of, you know, your big takeaways from the COVID-19 pandemic for like the broader scientific community, like not just health science, but, you know, science communication yep. at large? Um, I'll try and do three uh, things that come to mind. One is COVID was like the world's worst health care problem, like because the the science was evolving. Like mm -hmm. I remember the month I wiped my groceries down with Clorox wipes. Like that doesn't mean we were wrong. It means we learned stuff. But right. so even people who were doing it like perfectly still look like they were idiots two months later and then it's like well why should we trust these scientists like that's it was it was a really hard thing to do well even when people were doing it well um you know i think the other one of the lessons it taught me was i was when covid first hit people were like what are you guys going to do i'm like well i know the answer is that i'm not going to ask my team to develop like a billion six foot physical distancing graphics like this is stupid like there's the best one and someone's built it and that's a waste of time and so i think there's a systems level thing that could be solved like how do we better test and spread really good messages during a pandemic like i mean how many six foot graphics were created like a billion like there was one that was the best and a lot more people could use it we'd all save time um and then i think the third one is one of the examples i use a lot when it's like sometimes it's not knowing what to say but what not to say mm -hmm. we did um in summer 2020 our team did uh, 18 focus groups i think it was with faculty staff and students at ut in like a two-week period to prep for like how should ut talk about this in the fall and in a couple of the early groups, we were trying to like, like tone of messages. There was, um, I think it was Western Illinois University had this like super cute little bulldog mascot and they had a, a photoshopped, like they put a little mask on him and we showed it to people. It was like, Hey, what do you think about this? And people loved it. They're like, Oh, that cute little bulldog. And he's wearing his mask wrong. Cause not over his nose. Like people liked it. Um, we photoshopped the mask on the Bevo and I cannot express how much people hated it. Like, I mean, like two groups. And it was like visceral hatred of that bit. Like, and so we like my postdoc he's like we're gonna stop showing that to people right it's like yep and we send it to the we at the end of every day we send a message to the ut tower level comm team like here's three things we heard today and like that was one of the ones that day like ut puts bevo in everything there is no way we were not gonna put bevo on a face mask and i was like for just please don't do this <laughs> like people hate it and so it's like that that willingness to kind of like test and be like nope like here's something not to say is, is a, a really important part of testing and that one just happens to be covid related Perfect. Poor Vivo. <laughs> yeah, so you mentioned that you don't necessarily try to teach um, students on how to like do communication on different platforms. Like you don't teach specifically how to communicate on TikTok. But do you think that these platforms are posing like unique challenges? Um, like, for example, like how can private companies like Facebook uh, or governments combat health misinformation uh, in the media? Yeah, it's a real, I mean, it's a real mess. Um, I mean, that's the, one of the biggest changes I think too is um, the, the fact that like you can you can go back to like the nineteen you know nineteen flu pandemic or whatever it was. There were people who were against masking. Like I mean, there were all these things that we had now that happened a century ago, but there was no way that every person who thought that could find every other person on the planet who thought that way. And so it, it really has. That's one problem, and I think the other is that because there's like literally everything on the internet, you can find something to support whatever you want to do anyway. And so I, I don't, I don't personally do a lot of misinformation research. Like, I don't think I can handle it, but it, the thing that I, I, I take away from it is like, we got to focus on people where communication is going to make a difference. Like during COVID, there were some people who were like, it did not matter what we said to them. They weren't going to get a vaccine or whatever it was. 
stop talking to them. Like focus on the people where communication can make a difference, do a really good job with them and, and know that calm is just one part of the solution. Like all the people on my team who have MPHs basically have to learn to turn off parts of their public health brains because the solution isn't always calm. It's a policy or it's like, there's other things that we can do, but for what we do, it's calm. And so we just have to focus on where communication really can't make a difference. And so it's, it's accepting that reality and then figuring out where to, where to spend our time and energy. That is entirely fair. Yeah. It's, it, it would be, you know, a misguided like, effort to just focus on one part of it and not understand that there's like a lot of different things that go behind uh, making sure there's effective health communication going on. I know like just, you know, cursory research, your publication history covers a really, really broad range of topics from like health liter literacy to like men's role in like prenatal health to the opioid epidemic um, and social media. Are there consistent, like, effective principles of health communication across these variety of issues? Like, yeah, is it I mean, consistent between all of these? Yeah, I mean, I would argue yes. I mean, yeah. you know, it's, it's that idea of, like, thinking like the person you're trying to reach. Sure. Like, when, I, when, I, when we do work with people in public health, mm -hmm. I, I love them, but they think about their public health issue or population a lot, all the time. And they are unable to think of it like a normal person anymore. And so a lot of times that's kind of the perspective we bring is like, well, you might think about this 40 hours a week because it's your job. Like normal people don't think about this at all. And that's a starting point. And so I think that 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 to me is the most consistent piece is like really doing the kind of audience focused thinking on how people are going to hear the thing you're saying. Yeah. Um, and knowing that they might do a health behavior, but not for the health reason you want them to. Like that was the, that was the other probably COVID lesson learned. Like yeah. there were some people in public health were like, but no, you could kill grandma. And it's like, some people aren't going to care about that, but they are going to care about keeping the bars open. That's fine. Like, I don't care why you wear a mask, just wear a mask. Yeah. And I think we sometimes try a little too hard to get people to kind of like do the right thing for the right reason. I just want them to do the right thing. Um, even if there's a different reason that might motivate them more. That is interesting. Yeah. I guess like if everyone's doing it, then it doesn't matter what the reason is. Um, so like, how does, how do you think like health communication efforts adapt to particular issues, you know, at, at hand? Like, is it just shaped by what motivates the audience like the most? Or like, how does that, how do you adapt to like different scenarios? It's that. It's a lot of like understanding kind of the audience we're trying to reach. The other thing that in our work is really important is like, I'm never the health expert on any of this stuff. And so having a really big team, like on opioids, we work with the right people from pharmacy and social work and nursing and the med school. And then we work, you know, on a different project with different health experts. And so just always, always knowing that the, the really, the best stuff happens when you have people who both know the health part and the communication part. And that's like, that's what makes the work fun too. Like, is every project I'm like, oh, I didn't know that about it. Like, I didn't know aim about opioids before we started in the opioid work. Now I know a lot, not as much as an opioid expert, but you know, um, I've, I've learned a lot through working on every health issue we've worked on. Yeah. Uh, looking to the future, how do you think um, health communication is uh, evolving and how do you, uh, see it moving towards the future yeah so you can like everything i own basically at this point says evidence-based health communication on it right. and i think that's the other the outcome for healthcom at least the way we do it is way more people like i always laughed because i came to healthcom from the comm side and we need, i'd meet a physician they're like evidence-based medicine i'm like what else have you people been doing the whole time and as soon as I started talking about evidence-based health calm, all of these people in public health are like, oh, so you also know stuff? I'm like, yep, sure do. And so I think that way more people had that moment of like, oh, it matters how we communicate about health. And so 
since COVID, like I have, we have multiple projects that are going on that are very much a result of people who probably historically wouldn't have thought to include a, a, a big health comm component that now are. And so I think understanding that, you know, working with, with people in all these different epidemiology and all these backgrounds where it's like, oh, but also a person knows about health is really important or knows about communication is really important. No, I mean, I think the field has a chance to really move forward and kind of have more of a seat at the table than it had in the past, just because so many people, like we experienced it for a couple of years of what, how not the best health come can cause a lot of problems. And so I think there's a, an, a, a lot more understanding of the importance of doing it well. Yeah, that makes sense. Like you only know you need something when it's gone, you know? So um, it makes sense that during like a period of crisis that people started appreciating it more. One of the, um, one of the faculty at the medical school we work with always talks about making the people he works with um, consciously incompetent. Like, you don't know what you don't know. And so a big part of getting better is being like, oh, I could be better at whatever the thing is. Um, and I think the, the pandemic in particular made people like, oh, like that, that's a, that's room. There's room for growth here. And there's people who actually do this thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I feel like this is more of a personal, like, you know, thought that I've just, it's just been running through my head, but, you know, as someone who wants to go into grad school and eventually pursue like research, um, there's like, there's always that nagging thought at the back of my head. Like, how do I make sure that this is something that like everyone can access, not just people like in my field, you know, like how is this something that I can tell to anyone who might not know a lot about chemistry or neuroscience. And it's sort of come to my attention, just like talking to people that there's this almost sometimes a sense of like, just distrust with the people that work in science and stuff, just because of the sense of like, elitism that's been passed on like over years i don't know if that's like something you've noticed like when you work in your field or is that something that's just being like made up like it's not real no no we we did it this is god 15 years ago probably we did a study we were looking at how you could help parents who might struggle with health information uh more information about raising healthy kids and we were like, you know, like, how do you search senior for health information? And they were like, well, we automatically, like in, in multiple focus groups, we heard parents be like, well, we skip anything with a .edu or .gov domain because we've learned over time they're all completely not, like, we can't understand it. Um, and then someone's like, oh, and also, like, we don't trust the government. And I remember there was like, there was one random young dad. And he's like, really? You guys don't trust the government? And the guy next to me is like, you'll learn. Um, <laughs> they, they did trust researchers, but like, people have these just heuristics that, like, that it's not even like a, elitism rating but like if you if you're writing for other academics like you're going to write not like things that will seem very dense and hard to understand for normal people um and so that's just that's the way it is and so like for people who don't want to be that way it takes a lot of a lot of effort (laughs) to do that kind of that kind of outreach i guess that distress also sort of extends into like the medical health field like I'm from India and like the way we in like interact with our healthcare system is very different from the way that Americans interact with their healthcare system. I feel like there's a lot of inherent distrust with like, especially because of the middleman, the insurance companies and all of that. So I'm wondering like how, you know, how do we, how do you like address the elephant in the room that people don't trust their medical system like often? Um, you know, the thing about that though is they do trust their doctor. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Probably. Okay. Like, I mean, so we were doing a different project and I was talking to a clinic director like interviewing her for the project and i was like does, does the people in your patient population trust the safe for health information and she's like yes which is not the answer i was expecting she's like as soon as we tell them they should and so even if it's a person who doesn't trust like 
Texas Department of State Health Services necessarily, or might be skeptical. As soon as their clinic is like, here's the flyer that we think you should see, there's that validation of like their provider, their clinic that that does help validate that information. So it's not, you're not wrong to think there is some distrust of government sort like, you know, all of it. Um, but people, if they have a good medical home, like then usually trust that home and it can become a validator for for other issues. Okay. That is good to know that it's like not as like the distress is not as like big as I had imagined it was. Interesting. So um personally I'm doing like a science of communication minor, so I'm really interested in your work. Um I know you took a more spontaneous approach, I guess, like into this career, but do you have any advice for students interested in like science communication, health journalism, things like that? Yeah, um, you know, if there's you know, if there's a minor or that kind of program at the university you happen to be at, like there is a health comm minor at UT and I, I teach one of the courses I love, you know, seeing, we have so many students, they maybe start teaching the the core course that I teach every semester to get everybody through. Like it's so fun. And, and so there are those kinds of formal programs out there. One thing I can share with you guys afterwards, maybe if you can put like show notes or something, um, is like there's other kind of like free courses, neat, like trainings for students, regardless of where they might be, just to get little, little snippets of it and, and little, you know, through, through that's so that's one thing. The other is like really just any university has people who do health comm in different ways or science communication. So finding those folks, the faculty who do it and be like, how can I get involved? How can I help? Is there a project I can work on? Like I have tons of students working on tons of projects um, because we have a lot of things going on. And so there's there's always ways that interested students can can get involved and find ways to kind of just get those either formal courses or kind of little one on one projects or independent studies to kind of just start digging into things that are interesting. Also, I would I guess the other thing I'd add is that um, a lot of different programs have like thesis options of some kind. And I've I, like a year or two ago, I supervised a thesis from a student and she studied Grey's Anatomy for an entire season and how the doctors in Grey's Anatomy either do or don't follow like best practices for clear health calm with their patients. And like, in some cases they're great at it. In some cases they're really not good. Um, I think that student said her, her, her roommate was very jealous because her roommate was doing some complicated lab experiment. And she was like, I'm just watching Grey's again for my thesis. Um, but, but there's a lot of creative ways you can kind of explore health calm through that kind of a, you know, capstone paper writing requirement too. That's, that's, that's beautiful. <laughs> I am that roommate that's doing the complicated experiment. <laughs> um, I think just to like, you know, round out this like really really informative discussion on health communication i'm wondering because i think a large part of our audience are stem majors and like you know students in stem and people doing research or going into the healthcare field you know what last bit of advice you want to give them to make sure that they are doing the best they can to effectively communicate what they learn and how you know what they know with people who might not yeah it's it's an article i'd recommend um, and it's called The Coach in the Operating Room. It's by Atul Gawande. If you Google it, it pops it's like the top resort. It's in the New Yorker, if I remember correctly. Um, and the story of the article is he, as a surgeon, kind of plateaued. Like he kept getting better and better, and his outcomes just kind of got steady. And he was like, and then he was watching a professional sports. He was like watching like tennis or football or something. And like some incredibly talented world-class athlete was getting screamed at by his coach. He was like, well, why is that man who's the best in the world getting yelled at by a coach? And why is no one coaching me? And so he asked one of his old uh, surgical trainers to be like, can you come watch me? And the trainer, like his, like one of his teachers came and watched me. He was like, oh, you quit getting better because you got lazy. And like immediately gave him advice on how he could do a better job. 
And so I love sharing that article with with folks because it's kind of like this idea of like constant improvement, like regardless of what you want to focus on. And like, there's people who get coached in their communication. There's people like just that version of like your training doesn't stop when your training stops, like through formal ways. That's fantastic. I can I can get behind that. <laughs> well, thank you so, so much, Dr. Mackert, for joining us um, today. You wanted to mention the the courses you're talking about, the small like show notes. You are more than welcome to do that. Yeah, I'll pass along. It's the the one course is on um, pandemic preparedness and health communication. Um, it's for a state agency called um, the Texas Epidemic Public Health Institute. Um, if we put it in the notes and anyone who takes it, you don't only get that class for free. If you actually take the entire course and do the evaluation at the end, you get a code to take another of our online ed courses for free. And that's patient provider communication. It's the role of emotion in health communication. We just today launched, as we're recording this, um, a course on health communication for the deaf and hard of hearing community. So there's a, a lot of courses in there that I think could be of interest for folks. And so it's it's one free course, finish it, get another free course. There's a couple others in there that people could explore, but I'll, I'll get you the link so you can kind of share it too. Perfect. All right. You know, whoever is interested in like Samia, you know, that's going to definitely check these courses out because it seems like a very, very good opportunity to learn more about a very up and coming field for sure. <laughs> um, once again, thank you, Dr. Macker, for joining us. We have had a wonderful time having you here. Um, hopefully we will see you out on campus. <laughs> I, I hope so. This is, this is a lot of fun. Perfect. Thank you so much. The Unfinished Mind is brought to you by the Polymatic Scholars. Our scriptwriters this week were Niels Levy Tubo and Vivek Ramadan. Sound designed by Bolong Ten. Produced by Caitlin Hawkins. Our publicists are Claire Nevins and Nadine Pramana. Hosted by Akshipant and Samya Sridhar. Thanks for listening and remember to follow your curiosity. <laughs>